we're a data-led company. Right. The data that we have, knowing what the customer is looking for, trying to put that in front of them, knowing the types of deals that they want or like the types of products that they eat, putting that in front of them. Ideally, knowing what they've cooked and what they haven't cooked, like all of that stuff is incredibly important and rich for our business. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. I'm very excited for our guest today. We have Mike Salguero, who is the founder and CEO of ButcherBox. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I think a lot of our listeners probably are aware of ButcherBox and pretty familiar with the name at this point. You've built up quite a business there, but tell us a little bit about your background and really what led you to start the company in the first place. Sure. So first of all, for those that don't know, ButcherBox, we're a subscription business. We ship meat raised better in the mail. So we want to compete against your local butcher and we have a product that animals raise better. It's better for the environment, better for the farmer and ultimately better for the end customer. And we deliver it directly to your door without any of the hassle or questions. We just simplify that. So before ButcherBox, I ran a company for seven and a half years called custommade.com, which was a venture-backed business. We raised about $30 million in venture capital from the likes of Google. And that business didn't work out. And I uh, basically took the weekend off and then started ButcherBox. And the idea (laughs) behind ButcherBox was that it was supposed to be a hobby. I didn't think that the business was ever going to get above a thousand subscribers and thought like, Hey, if we had a thousand subscribers and I made a $20 profit per month, like that's $20,000 in profit. And if I just like hired a few people or outsourced customer service, I could like cover my expenses and have a nice little bootstrap business. Yeah. I might have a little something here. Yeah. That was the plan. Hobby business, kind of Tim Ferriss for our work week model. And I like to say that I failed at that plan miserably because right away when we launched ButcherBox, which we launched on Kickstarter, it just started to work. It clicked in a way that, I mean, I spent seven and a half years trying to get custom made to work. Within a week, it was like, wow, we've really struck a nerve here. People are really Mm. interested in what we're offering. And then it just grew from there. So throwing $30 million at the problem isn't necessarily a guarantee for success. No, I mean, with the first company, like we didn't ever really find product market fit. And we were trying to solve a really hard problem. We were trying to connect a consumer who doesn't really know how to describe what they're looking for. It was a marketplace for custom stuff. So a consumer, okay. I'm looking for a dining room table and this is what I want. And here are some photos for inspiration. And then we connect them with a local maker who could make it. Both sides of that party, it's really hard to transact online. And for a whole host of reasons, it was a very hard product and engineering challenge. It turns out it's much easier to sell someone a box of meat, especially a box of meat with a bunch of claims that they want, but don't know where to find. Like the, our pasture raised antibiotic hormone free fed beef is like Mm -hmm. hard to find. And it was even harder to find in 2015. So there were people who were like, I want to buy this product, but I don't know where to go. I mean, we were just able to reach that audience in interesting and effective ways and really build a scale a subscription business really quickly. Yeah, seven or eight years ago, maybe it's been longer, maybe it's been less, but it feels like that was around the time where those terms like hormone-free and grass-fed and all of those things in the meat world were becoming like really what people were seeking out. Like they were going through those departments in there or looking for that sort of thing in their grocery store or at their butcher. Is that what was part of the catalyst that made this grow so quickly for you? 
Yeah, well, we got involved with starting ButcherBox because my wife and I were doing like elimination diets. So we were following these paleo doctors online okay. and removing inflammation things. So gluten and dairy and nightshades and all these things from our diet. And then you add them back and you see if your body gets inflamed by them and then you remove them from your diet. So we were doing a whole bunch of that stuff. And all of these diets said, eat grass-fed beef and we couldn't find it. We we're like, where do you get grass-fed beef? I lived in downtown Boston. I went to my local grocery store in downtown Boston and there was like a brick of ground beef, but there was nothing else. And I like to cook. So I wanted steaks. I wanted short ribs. I wanted chuck roast. Like where are these products? And so I just got obsessed with like, where do we get grass-fed beef? And then that one thing led to another. And it was like, nobody's really doing this well. You could buy from local farms who would overnight ship it to you for an extra hundred dollars. But there wasn't anyone who had kind of taken the Omaha steaks model of shipping a lot of boxes out the door. Nobody had taken that model and done it for the grass-fed or claims-based market. And so we went after that. I actually started it just thinking it was a beef problem. But as I started like talking to people, because the price point was $129 a month or $129 per box. And when I started talking to people, they're like, I don't eat that much beef. I would never do this on a monthly basis. And I was like, well, what if there was chicken and pork in there? They're like, oh yeah, definitely. I would do that. I guess we're going to do beef, chicken and pork. So we expanded really quickly into other proteins with similar claims with the grass-fed equivalent in pork and in chicken. Gotcha. Well, you just brought up Omaha Steaks, right? They've been around for a really long time. So that mail order concept of meat's been out there. What about this being different from that? Do you think resonated? Were they Was Omaha even doing subscription at the time? Because I think they do now, right? No, they weren't really doing subscription. Omaha has always been a gift giving business. It's like 80% of their volume is within November, okay. and December. So much more heavily focused on corporate gifting or gifting in general, and a lot less focused on like daily consumption. I, because I was looking for a hobby business, I didn't want to be in the gifting business. I wanted to be in the recurring revenue business because subscription businesses, as you well know, are a beautiful way to just build up recurring compounding revenue. It's like the people that you signed up last month, you start at that revenue number minus churn for next month. So if you add more people, it's like just compounds on itself beautifully. So I was looking for subscription, but like a lot of the things that we did were very unique at the time. Nobody had done subscription for meat before. The whole like claims-based thing was different. And at the time, 2015 is when we started, there were like 120 Blue Apron lookalikes. There are all these companies that were like chasing Blue Apron with like the meal kit and all the stuff. And we were just like, we're not gonna focus on any of that. We're gonna focus on the meat. Like, cause I don't need to have someone send me a diced sweet potato. I just want the meat Mm -hmm. and I'll do the rest. And it just worked. It clicked. And obviously we did some really interesting marketing things to get going, but we found product market fit like immediately. Yeah. So back in 2015 and in the early days, your value problem is that people were looking for this grass fed and as clean as it can possibly be meat, right? And that is now proliferated. You can get that stuff pretty readily available at your grocery store these days. So today, are you seeing new customers come in for, is it for convenience? Is it for value compared to maybe what they can pay in their grocery stores? Like why are new customers coming in? Yeah, I think value is a big piece. I think convenience is a big piece, although there's obviously a lot more grocery stores delivering directly to your door or click and collect in the past five years. I also think the brand is really important. So yes, it's true. You can go into a local grocery store and find something that says grass-fed on it. But the difference in terms of the amount of rigor that has gone into that grass-fed versus what we're doing is completely different. 
we we're really building a system that honors the animal and the environment and the farmer and going to the nth degree to make sure that product that we have put our name on is the best possible. Like we've thought about the trade-offs. That's not the case with like grass-fed that you find in the supermarket. And so what we're trying to do is to build a brand in meat that's known for doing things right. I always say like Patagonia of meat. When you buy a Patagonia jacket, you know that Patagonia thought about the thread and they wanted to make sure that the thread had the smallest environmental footprint possible. And they like probably spent weeks on like, what thread are we going to use? We do the same thing with our product. And over time, I think it's definitely true short-term, but over time, more and more people will notice to the degree to which we go to make sure we're, we're delivering the highest quality, most claims at the best price. So how are you addressing the recent trend towards local, right? Because I think online brands can have the connotation that, well, this just comes out of the ether and I don't know where it really comes from. So how are you guys addressing that? Yeah, I mean, predominantly the customer at the end of the day cares about themselves, unfortunately. To a huge degree, if you ask a customer like, okay, what do you care about? Do you care about yourself? Do you care about the environment? Do you care about the animal? What do you care about? Overwhelmingly, like 90%, I care about myself and my own health. I'll admit it. Sure. And then the animal, then the environment. And finally is like farmer slash worker slash local, et cetera. So in terms of the consideration set, the most important thing is like the quality of the product and does it taste good? And it does it adhere to all these claims that I believe are like important, like grass fed. Now I live in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, you cannot have an animal grazing on grass year round. Like it would have to be confined at some point to get out of the harsh conditions. So if it was local, then I would be trading off that it's not going to be 100% pasture raised, no confinement. It's probably going to be supplemented. It's like all these other things. So you can't actually get the product that I believe is the healthiest for me. And so there is a local trend. I think eventually I would love to do a local program where we can like introduce people to local farms if that's what they want to do. That's not where we are now, but I think unfortunately, while local is important, like it's an important buzzword at the end of the day, where the customer is spending their dollars is on get me the best quality product at the best price. Makes sense. Well, let's turn back to, again, when you started the business, you said lightning in a bottle, things just kind of took off in a way that you didn't really expect. What were some of the early growing pains that you kind of ran into? Was it technology? Was it scaling people? Like as you were trying to grow that business quickly, what were you trying to solve for? We had a whole bunch of growing pains. So we bootstrapped. So we never raised any outside funding. We started with a Kickstarter campaign. We went out to pre-sell $25,000 worth of product. We pre-sold 215,000 in 30 days. Like right away, I was like, boom, okay. We got those boxes out really fast and we called those people and got them to subscribe while Mm -hmm. we launched the website. And then it just kind of took off. We partnered with a really good fulfillment house. So they were shipping out our orders and they were the type of fulfillment house that could handle tens of thousands of orders. So we weren't really worried about, are we going to outstrip our fulfillment capacity? Several times ran into just like cash crunch where you're making all this product and shipping it out and you have to have some inventory, but you don't have a lot of cash. So that was always fun. Technology was fine. I mean, our site is still duct taped together. This is the year of really moving over to a different platform, but seven years in, we've shipped a box to over 1.4 million households. And we're still on like WordPress sitting on top of Stripe subscription engine. We're really far behind. And yeah, we built it with simple technology because I wanted to outsource everything because this was supposed to be a hobby. 
The hardest part, I think, in growing one of these businesses is scaling your people. My first business, I did not do a good job of scaling my people. Too quickly or too slowly or the right people? Okay. So I have this analogy. When you start a company, it's like you're hacking through the jungle with machetes and all you're looking for is a path. When you are starting a company, the only thing that matters is you bring in people who will just hack all day and all night trying to find a path somewhere. And they're Mm -hmm. like go-getters and they're positive. And even when I'm like, I don't know if we're going to find a path, they're like, don't worry, we'll get you one. And like, they're just looking, right? Eventually Mm -hmm. you find a path and that path leads to a dirt road. And maybe on the road, there's a bus, a nice shiny little bus. My first company, this nice shiny little Google funded bus rolls by. I look at all of these people who hacked me to the road and we were like, you guys don't know how to drive a bus, do you? And they're like, no. And we're like, wow, we got to leave you here. And we basically, we left everybody in the jungle. We fired everybody. So over the course of two years, we started hiring for resume rather than for constitution. We started hiring for like, oh yeah, you can come in and help us versus like you had helped us up until this point. And it was so heartbreaking because the people who like I spent at custom made, the people that I spent years trying to get product market fit, as soon as we got funding, we didn't have product market fit, but as soon as we got funding, we were like, sorry. So this time around with ButcherBox, I didn't want that to happen. I believed that you can help people, I call it the talent curve, but everyone wants your company to grow and grow and grow exponentially. And if you can help people, oh, you start as an intern, but if we can help you progress your career and you can ride that growth curve, you can like start as an intern and leave as like running a huge piece of the company or being on the executive team. And I have tons of stories of stuff like that, but it's really hard. Most people fail at scaling themselves. Most people peter out at some point. So helping people to rise well beyond what they believe is possible. And then also knowing when it's time to say like, hey, you can't rise anymore or it's time to go or whatever. Yeah. Those are the hardest challenges of a rapidly scaling company. And we've, I mean, we've obviously scaled very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found that some of these people were great when you were holding the machete and trying to find the path, like they were really good, really scrappy at that, but didn't know how to really scale things. And then probably some inverse, right? Some people that were like, I'm good at systems and repeatable processes, but when I don't know what those are, I'm not good at defining them. If you have a bus full of bus drivers, if you have to go back in the jungle, those bus drivers do not know how to swing a machete. And yes, there are a lot of machete swingers who don't necessarily want to be on a bus. They're like, I just want to stay in the jungle. Like, I just want to hit. Yeah, yeah I'll just uh-huh. keep macheting some other business if it's not this one. You, we've been doing this for seven years. We've said goodbye to a lot of the first class of butcher box folks, the people that like helped us really kick this thing off. Not all yeah. of them have left. Like some of them have found great homes within the company. And I think my first company, I felt really bad about letting people go. And we let a lot of people go, but like, I felt really bad. Like I would take it personally. I think for anyone who's starting a company or has to let someone go, it's like, you know, something you might lose sleep over. It's just like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to like fire this person in the morning. And and where I've gotten to is if you want to run a company and you want to do that for the long term, which is what I'm trying to do at ButcherBox, like possibly my lifetime. The only thing that is actually a truth is that everybody is going to leave. It just depends on how long they stay there. It might be six months, it might be 60 years, but if you run a company forever, everyone's going to go. And so then the question becomes like, what matters? And what I care about is making sure that when people leave the company, they're like, that was the best career decision I ever made. Like, that's what I want. If we can help people ride the talent curve for as long as they can and change their career, we did our job. 
And if they yeah. leave and it's like, that sucked, then we did not do our job. Yeah, you want to be walking out the door forced or not and being like, that was a waste of two years of my life. Oh, like right. you want them to be like, I grew, I learned great thing on my resume now that I can take forward with me to my next opportunity, but everybody grows along the way, right? It's just some people aren't right for that next step or next right. phase. That's right. Right. Well, speaking of growth, being a food-based company, I'm really curious about the impact of 2020 and COVID on you guys. You were talking about bootstrapping and yeah. taking all the steps on your own without having to get outside funding. But I'm curious when all of that happened, I'm sure like a lot of other businesses I've talked to, orders all of a sudden go through the roof. How did you guys cope with that? Yeah. So I will answer that question with some sort of subscription dynamic, which I don't know if all of your audience thinks about or knows about. So the beauty of a subscription business, as I had mentioned before, is that they're compounding and they just kind of like your last month's revenue is this month's starting point and they just grow from there. The problem with a subscription business is when you get to a certain level, you're going to have some sort of churn rate. Like there's some sort of percentage of people who are going to leave your program. Right. And when you get to a certain level of people, you basically churn out as many people as you add, which we call the wall. So let's say you can only find 10,000 people to sign up for this, for your subscription service per month, let's say, and you have 100,000 people. Well, at a certain point, or maybe you start at 50,000 and if you lose 10%, you lose five, you gain five. At a certain point, you get to like, you're losing as many people as you're adding. And the only way to change the wall is to jack up your CPA, the, the cost that you're willing to spend to acquire a customer or dial down churn, but there'll always be churn. So you hit a wall. And then you're treading water and it's really hard to grow beyond this treading water point. And I mentioned that because we were convinced in COVID year in 2020, that was the year we were going to hit a wall. So our revenue path, you know, we started in September of 2015 and we did like 500 grand or 400 grand, including the Kickstarter campaign. 2016, we did 5 million. Then we did 33 million. Then we did 105 million. Then we did 225 million. So we did 225 million in 2019 going into COVID. And yeah. we were like, we're going to hit the wall this year. Like, I don't know, 10% growth. I think we were like, oh yeah, maybe we'll hit 300 million. And we went from 225 to 450. So we doubled the business. Now, previous year, we 2.5X the business. The year before we 3X the business. So we knew what blitz scaling looked like. We knew sure. what sure. like doubling the yeah. business looked like. We had just done uh -huh. it. We've done it every year prior. But it definitely took us by surprise, for sure. I was really early on COVID. I was following kind of the fringe bloggers and people that were like, this is a really big problem. It's coming over from China. This is going to be bad. Look at like these people passing out in the streets. And I had a friend who worked at an apparel company in Shanghai who all the factories shut down and she got stuck in the US and we were talking in like early, late January. And so for ButcherBox... My biggest concern was that I should have thought about this a little more than I did, but my biggest concern was that the factories were going to shut down. And so okay. we loaded up on inventory because right. ooh, the factories are going to shut down. Mm -hmm. We just like, Hey, as much inventory as you can give us, like, give it to us. We'll take it. So we were like decently well-prepared. I never thought, you know, I should have been like, oh, I should short the market. And also like, wow, if there is this, there's going to be a spike in demand. And so COVID hits. And I remember St. Patrick's Day. I also like probably had COVID, although at the time we couldn't get tested, but I'm like coughing up a storm and <laughs> fever. And in like five days, we added like three or four months worth of subscribers. Wow. And we were doing all this stuff, rolling back 
you do conversion tests and figure out, oh, if we put this badge up, if we have this offer, we get more subscribers. We were ripping all that away to try to like yeah. deter people from coming. We lasted like three weeks before we realized that if we kept allowing people to sign up, we were risking not having enough meat for our consumers, like for our members. Okay. Yeah, and, for the existing ones. Yeah, for the existing <laughs> ones. And as I told the company, I only eat butcher box at my house and I'm not going to go to the grocery store. And I bet we have a lot of customers like me and we should not be having our customers go to the grocery store right yeah. now. We should be like, let's limit our growth. And that's something you can do if you don't have investors and you don't care. And Did you ever think you would say something like that? We had to limit our growth for a period of time? Oh, totally. Unfortunately, <laughs> in our business, in the claims-based world, like you really need to well-manage your growth because if there's a ton of demand, let's say millions of people listen to this podcast and they're like, I want to sign up. And all of a sudden we have all these new customers. We can't handle that because there's an animal that has to be grown on the other end. Right now we're making commitments for Q3, Q4. We're telling people very early how many animals to be raising or how to, mm -hmm. because it's just, it takes thousands of farmers and tons of animals. So we need to hit our plan or exceed our plan, but chase a little bit of meat, not right. double. We obviously held on during COVID and with the help of all of our partners and whatnot, we were able to navigate through. We went on a wait list, though we opened the wait list. Yeah. So 2020, we doubled the business. 2021 is when like inflation started, COVID related inflation. Mm -hmm. And 21 and 22, the price of like everything associated with meat has gone through the roof, whether it's diesel, like trucking, transportation, Transported. cardboard. So our box, our, the, mm -hmm. the paper and pulp index is up like 25%. Labor, obviously, to put things in. And then meat, like one of the primary inputs for at least for chicken and pork is the price of corn is through the roof, especially with the war in Ukraine, because we do organic corn. Like, so... Everywhere around, it's just like price increase, price increase, like just, and for us yeah. as a subscription business, the way that we work is we sell you a base box and then you can add whatever you want to it, which is kind of an inflation nightmare. So we had to do two price increases. We did one in 21 and one in 22, where just like wholesale, everybody gets like a 6% price increase just so we can get back to a gross margin that is what we had before. Makes sense. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, tough to navigate through all of the ins and outs of COVID for sure. Yeah. So curious, what did you see through those price increases? Were customers receptive to that? I mean, did you see a spike in cancellations that you expected or? We saw an extra week's worth of cancellations, which I thought okay. probably indicated that we didn't increase prices enough. And at the time, the thing about grocery stores is if the price of chicken breast goes up a dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, now it's $7.99. They just pass that on to the customer. It's like, well, instead of $7.99, now it's $9.99. Like they just mm -hmm. add that dollar to the customer. In our case, we can't do that. But I think our customers were seeing the price of everything go up and understood it. We're always one of our core values is being customer obsessed. So we did in a very transparent, here are our costs. We're actually not even passing all of our costs to you. And people seem to appreciate that. Yeah, that's a good takeaway right there. We've talked about that before. So you were reaching out to your customers ahead of time, letting them know it was coming, giving them some of the reasons behind that. That probably had a lot to do with why those cancel curves weren't, weren't uh, yeah. what you were fearing. Well, definitely legally, you have to tell them beforehand. <laughs> you can't just like jack it up. But another core value for ours is authenticity. Just being open and honest about like what you're dealing with is always a good policy. And that's how we navigate it through. Yeah. 
Well, I want to ask you something about the on the marketing side of things. And first of all, I want to reference something from an article you read on LinkedIn, which I think is pretty fascinating about internet arbitrage, which the whole article is good. But one section that I kind of made me laugh out loud was wildcatting for oil. Yeah. What, tell us a little bit about that that idea and your approach to marketing. Yeah. So I have this analogy that marketing is, especially when you're starting, like very early on, especially if you're bootstrapping, it's this concept of like wildcatting for oil. So if you're going to go find oil, it's not a good idea to run around with a giant oil rig and just dig huge holes. Like that doesn't work. So what do you do? You go out to like a potential oil field with a small shovel and you just dig a little hole and you do that over and over. And once you hit oil, you're like, Ooh, we found a spot that this might be interesting. Then you bring in a small rig and you start extracting and then you're like, wow, this is really working. This is a big oil field. Then you bring in the big rig. Mm -hmm. So for us, when we started, because we were unfunded, we needed to be what we called box one profitable, which meant that the first box that we shipped you, we had to make money on it. Our profit was going to be like $20 a box. So we had to find a way to sign up customers for less than $20 a box, which is hard to do. So we're like, okay, what do we do? Like, how do we do that? Oh, maybe we do Facebook. And then we threw a little bit of money at Facebook and it was like, definitely not. That's not going to work. We didn't really actually do much else other than dip our toe into Facebook and then influencers was the big one. Okay. So what we did is we reached out to all of these paleo doctors and bloggers and all the people that we were following, my wife and I were following with elimination diets. And we said, Hey, like we got into grass-fed beef because we read these articles that you wrote that how we should eat grass-fed beef. And then we couldn't find it anywhere. So we started this company to like help consumers find grass-fed beef. And we can't pay you to tell your audience about us. We can't pay you up front. But what we can do is we can pay you on a residual. So what we'll do is you tell your audience about our product. And every month that that member is member, we're going to pay you $10. And so now like that's, you know, your box one profitable. And then every month beyond that, you're paying somebody a spiff, but like, who cares? And that model in 2016 worked incredibly well. And so it was like, ooh, this worked. What actually happened was an influencer tweeted about our Kickstarter campaign. And they were like, look at this. This is interesting to their audience. And we saw a whole bunch of people sign up that day onto our Kickstarter campaign from Twitter. And we're like, we should do more of this. And we found every single influencer. Thrive Market at the time was doing influencers really well. The way their URL structure was, was like thrivemarket.com slash influencer slash. And so you could just like put that into Google and we just got all of them. So, I mean, our influencer program now is hundreds of people. And what we didn't know that we would like get into, but we did was these influencers, then they're getting a residual every month, right? They're getting income for not really doing anything. They just, mm -hmm. maybe they send an email a quarter and then they just get checks. Right. So what happened was we built this like really nice moat around the business because we got all these influencers to promote us and they're all receiving monthly checks. What motivation do they have to market a different brand, like a competitor? Someone else is like, oh, will you do the same for us? And they're like, no, I'm getting these checks from ButcherBox for former, why would mm -hmm. I do that, right? Why so, would I walk away from that? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, from 2016 until like 2019, and I think the influencer strategy has changed a lot right now. But from 16 to 19, just a total shift. We just kind of ran the market on paleo, keto, 
carnivore diet, these types of influencers were all promoting ButcherBox. Are current influencer deals still structured the same way? Or now is it more, no, they want to be paid up front? Some of them are, but most of them. So what happened with influencers over that time period is they started to figure out their worth or better ways to monetize their audience or in their traffic. And a lot of them launched their own supplement brands or their own cookbooks or their own stuff. Right. And it's like, this doesn't really fit in anymore. It will, if you pay me up front. Now that we like have some cash because we've been in business for long enough, and a lot of predictability, we're able to not have to be box one profitable. We're able to say like, okay, well, we know that member is going to stay for X amount of months and make this much money and we'll pay you up front. So yeah, the deals have yeah. changed a lot. It's kind yeah. of like that arbitrage has closed. Yeah. Well, being, as long as you guys have been in business, you probably have a really good sense of what lifetime value is to an average customer, like what you could expect from them over a period of time. So having that gauge better influences, right? how you can move that acquisition cost lever, like what you're able to spend and know that, okay, we might not make it back this month, but hey, month 3.5, we're there. Yeah, your acquisition to lifetime value ratio is like by far the most important thing. When you're starting the company, your acquisition to lifetime value ratio and how fast your payback is, is really important. So how fast Mm -hmm. getting that acquisition cost back with the first thing was, I need that day zero. Over time, you're like, okay, within 60 days, or some people are at six months, or it depends, but you want to be tracking that. But the lifetime value, and the way that we calculate lifetime value, which is the way I think everyone should calculate lifetime value, is the actual margin that you make on the customer. Like where a lot of lifetime value things go wrong is that they're using revenue, and they're like (laughs) not actually taking out the expenses, or they don't take out shipping, or they don't take out pick pack, or it's not an actual clean number. So it's really Mm -hmm. important to load all of your costs in there. I mean, when we do our customer acquisition costs, we're also loading not only at the cost to acquire customers, but also that team's expenses, like the marketing team that is acquiring customers, load it all in there. And you get a ratio and that ratio, you've got to be making more on, if you spend a dollar, you put a dollar in the machine, you need to be making more than a dollar over the lifetime. And ideally in year one, I mean, and you need to have like a nice beefy return on that dollar that you spent. The other thing that I see a lot of people do is they decide to acquire customers at a higher price. Like they'll increase their customer acquisition costs with the promise that their lifetime value will improve over time. It's like, well, Mm. once we launch Mm. this new distribution center, we're going to save $5 and therefore Uh the tweak it this way. It's like, don't do that either. You got to look at your lifetime value with like what you have today, the costs you have today, not like future things that you might do to the business. Yeah. Optimization is gravy later down the road. And then maybe you can play with that acquisition cost later, but don't do it now. Yeah. But what you find, like one of the things that I love about the business that we're in is it's very right brain, left brain. So I can be very creative and think about like a marketing campaign or something interesting like that. And then there's also when you're dealing with high volume, lots of boxes going out the door, every dollar matters, especially if it's like a monthly subscription. Because those dollars, like that ratio can change completely. So your lifetime value to CPA ratio, if all of a sudden you can trim $2 a box off of a box by whatever, buying cardboard at a different price, all of a sudden the dynamics of your lifetime value to CPA or customer acquisition cost ratio can change completely. We've done this from the beginning, I think largely because we're unfunded and also because I'm incredibly cheap. We're doggedly focused on driving every single dollar out of the system that we could. Any waste, 
you know, it turns out like the tape that covers a box. When you're shipping as many boxes as we are, it's like millions of feet, linear feet mm -hmm. of tape. And it's yeah. like, if you can trim a 0 0.001 cents off of that, it's yeah. huge money. Most people don't think that way. They're just kind of like, well, we're just going to focus over here. But there's tons of money to be made on the operational side. So I love that you brought that up because I feel like I, I broke a record sometimes when I talk about this. You know, a lot of startups use Stripe for good reason, right? It's easy, it's there, and it's, you know, you can sign up and get up and running in minutes. And that's great for startups. As you scale this business, don't forget about that. Go back and renegotiate those contracts, even if you're going to stay with Stripe. But there's a lot of alternatives out there because now pennies can actually make a really big difference once you're yeah. at a certain scale. But it's also easy to just go focus on the other parts of your business, the marketing, the acquisition and things like that, not pay attention to some of those other things that you might have set up years ago and kind of forgot about, right? Yeah. And I mean, Stripe, great example. I mean, we did this with Stripe. It's, hey, we just hit $100,000 a month in revenue. Can we get a price break? And they're like, yeah, no, we don't give one until $150,000. Hey, we just hit $150,000. What's our price break? And then what's our next price break? And what's the one after that? Because we're going to keep yeah. coming back to you. And people don't tend to do that. If you can drop 50 basis points off of your processing fees, it's huge money. Yeah. And that's actually how you grow profit. Now, what's interesting we're February of 2023. What's happening right now is people are actually caring a lot more about building a profitable business rather than like scaling a business. Don't worry about that. Like you can worry about that later. Like don't spend your time on that. Just focus on growing. And sure, sure, I'm sure. really glad as somebody who's a bootstrap founder, I'm really glad that we're actually getting back to basics, which is no, go negotiate that because every penny that you can save, you can redeploy into marketing or you can redeploy into profit or you can just build a more resilient business. And I'm tickled that founders are finally starting to like do that hard work because it's really fun. I mean, that's like, I love negotiating stuff and trying to get deals. And I, I do too. Like optimization has been what I've been doing for years. And I love just finding the little tweaks here and there that'll make you yep. more profitable, save some money, collect more revenue. Those are the things that are a lot of fun to me. Yep. Cool. Well, Put everything uh, on a credit card too, so you can get those points. That's another one when you're starting out. Right. That comes with its own set of problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, last, last question. Again, you've grown a company very, very quickly. And we've talked a little bit about the lessons that you've learned along the way. But if you could go back and give yourself advice or to another subscription startup that is thinking about getting into the space right now, like what are the one or two things that you're like, man, definitely do this or don't do that? So I think subscription has changed a lot over the past seven years. So we're actually moving our entire platform to Shopify, which will be kind of somewhat done, somewhat, well, it started, but not everything has been moved. But this year, everything will be on the Shopify platform. I would definitely recommend Shopify, but there are also other platforms out there, but not really building it yourself because why would you these days? Mm -hmm. Like all these great ways to just bolt things on and time together and one of the things that we've learned in our business is that we're not an engineering-led company. We're a data-led company. Right. The data that we have, knowing what the customer is looking for, trying to put that in front of them, knowing the types of deals that they want or like the types of products that they eat and putting that in front of them, ideally knowing what they've cooked and what they haven't cooked, like all of that stuff is incredibly important and rich for our business. But we're essentially a checkout flow and then some management pages. So you got to know what business you're in. And for us, we outsource like everything, like still, because it was a hobby business. So I want to work with the best partners across customer service, pick, pack, and ship, cutting farms, et cetera, including technology. Like just find the best partners and, and work with them rather than build it yourself. Mm -hmm. 
The other piece of advice is go to a different tech platform. Don't build your own. And the second piece of advice is, you know, there's a point where you're going to start looking at churn. So you're like, oh, we lost 200 people this month and we added 500. And so we're positive. And there's a few things on churn. One is don't look at it in the aggregate, 200 people churned. Look at churn as how did people for us, like box one to box two, what percentage of people left? So for us, we send you a box, you sign up, we send you a box. The biggest churn that we have is after the first box, right? People are like, either they didn't like it. So we can see churn immediately. First of all, we see churn on day zero. They didn't even get a box yet. So those people didn't want a subscription. They just wanted to try one box. Then we see a big slug of churn at day five or six, which is kind of, they received their box and they're like, oh, I don't like this. And then we see a big churn, like right before they're going to get billed again. But your box one person and all those touch points is very different than like somebody who's been with you for six months. And oftentimes we've run into this as well. Oftentimes you think about everyone in the aggregate. It's like, we need to get the number down from 200. And it's like, well, actually there's 80 people who churned as soon as they received the box. And why did they churn? And there's 50 people over here who churn because of this. And you really looking at things on a granular level is what will help you dial things in. And it's just trying to prevent people from leaving by giving them a great experience. Yeah, that's great advice right there to segment out those cancels that way. I think somebody who churns immediately, that was a customer who was trying a product, right? They don't even know that they want to be a part of your brand, which is drastically different from somebody who's been a customer for six months yep. and now are probably canceling for drastically different reasons, probably less to do with the product. It could be I'm moving or changed yep. my diet or something like that. You want to address those things differently. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been a really fun conversation and certainly appreciate all of the background and insights that you've shared. For anybody listening today that maybe has some questions, wants to learn more or check out ButcherBox, where can they go? Yeah, ButcherBox.com. And you can use the code Mike sent me for $30 off your first box, I believe. And then you can find me at Twitter at, at Mike Salguero, S-A-L-G-U-E-R-O. And yeah, if anyone has any questions or LinkedIn, you feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to engage in any dialogue or any follow-up questions people have. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Mike. Really appreciate it. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. 